gas station yesterday, and uh, I stopped to put some gas in the truck, and I pulled up behind the fellow that was there before me, and as I was uh, trying to trying to decide if I would use the uh, pump right behind him or what, he, he pulled away. And so uh, I thought, well, I'll just go where he was, and I pulled up where he was, and it said on the, uh, the meter, $67 of change that he had, had uh, charged for his gas. And so uh, I went up, I put my card in just like you always do, and I could not for the life of me get that $67 in change to clear out. I, I could not get it to, and so I, put, I punched the help button, and there was no help. <laughs> Nobody talked to me, I didn't get any intercom, any of that sort of thing. So I made my trek to the office, and I said, uh, sir, could you help me out? Uh, I can't get this pump to clear, and uh, I just want to make sure, I already put my card in, so I just want to make sure he paid for his gas, that I'm not paying for that. Uh, I want to pay for my gas, and he said, no problem, and he hit a button, and he ran me a receipt that said zero on my account. And I said, so now what do I do? He says, just go back, start all over again. And so I went back, and I started all over again. And uh, I got it through to the point where it says, uh, choose which, uh, which octane you want. And I pushed it, and uh, it wouldn't light up. And I pushed it again, and it wouldn't light up. And I pushed it again, and it wouldn't light up. So I made my trek back to the office, and I said, sir, I can't choose the octane that I want. And he said, well, you have to hit it really hard. And I wanted to say, you mean like this? Is that what you're talking about? I, and I looked at him and I said, but with a smile, because I knew I was going to bring this message this morning. Yeah, the Lord does that. He says, yeah, do you really mean what you're telling the people? Are you practicing what you preach? And so I'm thinking, I, I need to be gracious here. So I tried. But I did in a very nice tone say, this is the last time I'm walking back to the office. So if I can't get it to work, and uh, so I just drove around and chose another pump, and it worked. And uh, as I hit the button that says, do you want a receipt, which I do, because I always give that to my wife, and she keeps track of all that, I thought, it's probably not going to print, and then I mean, whatever. But it did, and all is well. Point being, it, you know, it doesn't take anything for something to potentially set us off in life. Am I right? I mean, something as simple as I'm just trying to pump gas. I, I, I didn't have an attitude when I went, I'm just trying to pump gas. And it was real easy for me to be frustrated, you know, with the poor guy at the, at the counter. And uh, I, so I, I resisted that temptation. You know, I once had a Christian businessman tell me that some of the most disappointing people he had ever dealt with over many years in sales was fellow Christians. Words came out of his mouth when he reminisced about many years of selling an item to people. Words like this from, from fellow Christians, rude, surly, not completely honest in negotiations, not paying bills on time, sometimes vindictive, sometimes lying, oftentimes cheating, and I thought to myself, well, it sounds like he's living in the real world where you, you all have to work out there in the real world, so to speak. But the only trouble was that these folks claimed to be followers of Jesus. So how did those disappointing people affect this businessman's faith? That was my question. 
So you have all these years of sales experience and some of the most disappointing came from fellow believers. How is that affecting your faith? Well, fortunately, he was strong in his faith. And uh, he was forgiving by nature, that kind of a guy. And he was mature enough, he was old enough and mature enough to understand that even in the life of the church, now listen to me, even in the life of a church, I'm not talking about this one in particular, I'm talking about the church, the true church universal, any church, that's the true church, that even in the life of the church, there will be immature believers who don't always measure up to standards. And what often happens to people who come to Christ and who get involved in a church, which they should do, they join this fellowship of believers, these fellow Christians, with the idea thinking that uh, these fellow disciples of Jesus are going to be a great experience for my life. And I'm going to get to know the people in the life of the church only to discover that some church people can be pretty disappointing at times. And we've all been there. We have all experienced that. And sadly, perhaps all of us have, have been that to some other believer at some point in time. But it's a really hard subject to talk about. Because it sounds like we're, talk, we're picking on ourselves, and we're picking on the church, and we're picking on people in general. And are you talking about me? And are you trying, you've got a secret message in there from all the, all the kinds of things that can happen. So a lot of times we don't talk about it. So how do we, as disciples of Christ, deal with disappointing people, especially when they cause pain and frustration? How do we, how do we handle that? How do we negotiate those, those waters when that happens? Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul, we're studying Philippians. The Apostle Paul gives us three little verses in this lesson. We're going for, that's actually four verses, I think. And, 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 and he describes the hard work that is involved with the highs and the lows of relationships. And it can be whether it's in the church family or whether it's in where you work, or the neighborhood where you live, or just life in general. But especially we want to talk about when that happens in the life of the church. How, do we, how are we supposed to process disappointing people? So let, let's read about it. And before we read these four verses, I want to remind us that Paul, he's writing the letter. Paul is in Rome. He is in chains. He has been chained to a guard. He is waiting in Rome to, to go to trial, to go before the emperor to uh, make some kind of a disposition on charges against him. And even in this hard place, he's trying to work out his calling. His calling was to lift up the gospel. His calling was to speak about the, the truth of Jesus Christ, that, that he, he can save our sins from our sins and he can he could take us to heaven one day. And he's trying to do this even in this hard place in prison. And guess what? If we go back to a couple weeks ago when we shared before, he's having some success. Even in prison, he's having some success in sharing his testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you think, now ask yourself this question we're going to read. Wouldn't you think that fellow disciples of Jesus would be willing to pull for him 
while he was in such a hard place? Wouldn't you think that his friends in the church, wouldn't you think that his fellow disciples of Jesus would say, Paul's one of our guys, and he's in a hard place, and wouldn't you think they'd want to pull for him? But the answer is no. Not all of them. Some actually made his job harder. So here we go, Philippians 1, 15 to 18. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Now he's handcuffed. He's cuffed. He's, he's chained to a guard. And he says, I will rejoice. All right, let's look at verse 18 quickly. Some, to be sure, he says, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. Now, listen, if you're having a little trouble thinking, is this going to be anything that can help me? Oh, we got our students all in the front row here. They're taking notes. Is there anything I'm going to get out of this for me because I'm a teenager? Or I'm, o I'm over 80 or 90 years of age. Is there anything in here for me? Or all of us in between. Is there anything in here for me? Hold on. Because there's something in here for you because from a young person all the way to our most senior saint, all of us have experiences with people that can be difficult for us at times. Can I get a true amen on that? Amen. amen. We all have it, whether it's a gas pump or in the life of the church, sadly. So he says, some for sure are preaching Jesus from envy and strife, but then there are some from goodwill that are preaching. So here he is in prison, and word reaches him that while he's waiting for his trial, chained into this guard, some other people have started preaching about Jesus while he's in jail. The first ones that he mentions have wrong motives because they're preaching about Jesus, but some of their hearts are jealous and filled with strife. So your, your translation may have said uh, envy. Uh, envy is jealousy. So we all kind of understand what envy and jealousy is. But let's take a look at the word strife. The word strife comes from a Greek word that talks about being heated, often violent conflict or disagreement. You see it on the board, on the screen there. A conflict or a quarrel. They're preaching Jesus, but from the perspective of quarreling, uh, contention, or competition between rivals. I mean, can you imagine out of that spirit, these people are lifting up Jesus? Now, that spirit there, that strife spirit there, my friends, is a likely culprit as to why we have so many different denominations in the church world today. Have you ever thought about that? Why do we have so many denominations? Why do we have so many churches that take pride in being called an independent church or a community church? They don't want to be identified with a denomination, but they sometimes become a little mini denomination in and of themselves, whether they wanted to or not. Why, why, does, why is this happening in the church world? 
Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, <clears throat> but we, we are a part of the Wesleyan denomination. This church here, Lakeview, is part of the Wesleyan denomination. Now, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but we take our name as a denomination from John Wesley, who was an Anglican minister uh, in the seven, early 1700s. And he and his brother, Charles, who wrote some beautiful hymns that we still sing today with gladness and all denominations sing them. These two men, John and Charles Wesley, had a tremendous influence for Christ in England. In fact, it was so powerful, it spread to the Americas and impacted America. And now it impacts the entire world. The Wesleyan Church is represented all around the world. We take our name from John Wesley and the Wesleys. But I wonder if you have heard about the dream that John Wesley had one night that impacted him so much that it changed him for the rest of his life. Given that he has a denomination called after his name, here is the dream, a description of the dream John Wesley had. Being much concerned about the rise of denominations in the church, John Wesley tells of a dream he had. In the dream... Anybody have dreams? Did anybody dream last night? How many can remember you had a dream last night? I had a dream last night. John's story was in it. I don't even know why, but he was in it. He was in my dream last night. It was a good dream. Uh, I don't dream often, but we all have dreams from time to time. And he says, I had this dream. In the dream, he was ushered to the gates of hell. And there he asked, are there any Presbyterians here? Yes, came the answer. Then he asked, are there any Baptists here in hell? Yes. Any Episcopalians? Yes. Any Methodists? Yes. The answer was yes each time. And he was much distressed about his dream. And so it says, Wesley then was ushered to the gates of heaven. And there he asked the same question in his dream. And the answer came back the same are there any, are there any uh, Episcopalians in heaven? And the answer was no. Are there any Baptists here in heaven? The answer was no. Are there any Wesleyans here in heaven? That wasn't in his notes there. No. Were there any, uh, 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 any Pentecostals in heaven? The answer would have been no. No, no, no. None of these people groups are in heaven. And so Wesley asked, well, who then is inside? Who's in heaven? And the answer came back, there are only Christians here. Amen. <laughs> there are only Christians here. Isn't that a powerful dream? I wonder how many people who come to know Jesus think that they have just joined this beautiful family of God where everybody gets along and everybody treats everybody else with love and kindness and nobody ever hurts anybody's feelings and no one ever has a disgruntled whatever. I wonder how many join a church and wonder if it's like that. Don't we all wish that were the case? If you've ever studied C.S. Lewis, how many of you have studied C.S. Lewis and read, read his, his material? If you've ever studied C.S. Lewis, you know that he addresses this very thing in his book called The Screwtape Letters. In The Screwtape, Screwtape Letters, there's this master demon called Screwtape, and he's giving instruction to a rookie demon. He's trying to share with this demon how to, how to mess people up and how to, how to win for the devil. 
And, it, and so he, he's instructing this rookie demon, and the demon's name, the rookie, is Wormwood. It's crazy names. How to get that spiritual death grip on the throat of every Christian that they can find. And so here's what he says. This is a quote from Screwtape Letters. Wormwood, this is the rookie demon now. Wormwood, the church is a fertile field. If you keep them bickering over details, structure, money, property, personal hurts, and misunderstandings, one thing you must prevent, don't ever let Christians look up and see the banner of victory flying because you'll lose them. Never let them see the glory of God, unquote. The glory of God is His holiness. We sang about it earlier, God's holiness. And His power to transform lives. How many of you would say that you got started off on a not very good track, spiritually speaking, and Jesus came into your life and to has totally transformed who you once were? Can we get a hand up in the air for that? The transform transforming power of Jesus Christ to change a life on the inside. In the verses we just read in Philippians, we see that Paul is in a hard place. We know that he is. He's chained to a guard. He doesn't have access to preach and to teach. And what happens is all these other men start preaching in his absence. Now we have to remember that all of the preachers were not speaking from jealousy and strife. They weren't all naughty. Some were doing their job from pure hearts. And some of these preachers that were filling in for, for Paul were lifting up Jesus and the gospel. And they were doing it the best they knew how. And we need to remember that when we get involved in a church. It does not matter if you have had some painful experiences in a church. Let me just assure you, there are normally some outstanding Christian leaders and people in every life-giving church. Outstanding people. And we have them represented right here in this body. Some outstanding Christian people. So let's be thankful that the church around the world and that churches right here in the city of Marion have some really awesome people in them. And in those churches, they have some awesome preachers. And they have some awesome teachers. And they have some awesome small group leaders. And they have some awesome department leaders. And they have some awesome trustees. And they have some awesome people who are helping to lead the true church of Jesus Christ from a pure heart and out of pure motives. And they would never behave like some of these other preachers that Paul was talking about. But there were some who were preaching the same message about Jesus. The message is the same. You need, you need to be saved. You need to put your trust in Jesus Christ if you want to go to heaven. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. You need to repent of your sins and tell God you're sorry. You need to, with God's help, stop going this direction and turn and go this direction. And anyone who does that and puts their faith and trust in Jesus can be saved from their sins. And that can happen for you this morning before you leave this place, if you've never done that. So they were preaching that. And that's a good thing. There's not a thing in the world wrong with that. But there were some 
who's, who preached the right truth about Jesus, but they preached it from a wrong motive, a motive of envy, a motive of jealousy, a, a motive of strife and, and willingness to create division in the life and in the body of Christ. Their message was contentious. You know what contentious means? It's divisive, even though they were representing Jesus in their teaching. So we have these two groups of preachers, and both groups saying appropriate things about Jesus. So what's the difference between the two? All right, let's look at verse 16. The latter, he says, and I'll just tell you, that refers to the good guys, the good preachers. The latter, the good guys, do it out of love. They're preaching about Jesus out of love, knowing that I, Paul, am appointed for the defense of the gospel. I'm in jail now, but God has put an order on my life that I am to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether I'm free or in prison. And they understand my calling. In other words, they were motivated from love which Jesus has commanded all of us who are followers of Christ. He didn't, he didn't suggest it. He commanded that we are to operate in the body of Christ with love, His love. That is what followers are to do. And they understood that Paul was following his passion to defend the gospel. And he was doing it with God's help, even from a nasty, dirty, cold, dungy prison. It's amazing. But... The former preachers that he talked about, those are the bad guys. The former guys proclaim Christ, the same Jesus, but they're proclaiming it out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me, Paul, distress in my imprisonment. That's like insult to injury. I'm already having a hard life experience in jail, and then you're going to put this on me? Is sort of what he's saying, and they did. This inappropriate group of preachers were motivated out of a self-centered heart, and they were apparently purposefully and deliberately trying to give Paul a hard time. Have you ever felt like somebody was trying to give you a hard time? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever had a boss or a, a manager or a supervisor or someone, someone in your neighborhood or someone in the family it's like every time you see them, you just feel like they give you a hard time. They give you, they give you the cold shoulder. They won't give you the time of day. They will not warm up. They will not enjoy any conversation with you. They, it's just, it's like they take pride in giving Paul a hard time when he's already got a hard time. Here's a Christian life lesson. <clears throat> you might want to jot this down in your own form. Okay? Now, honey, I need you to, you're start, honey, you're starting to kind of distract me. And I need to stay focused because I'm not that good. Okay, will you help me with that? I appreciate that. Okay, look, here's the life lesson. Forget about what I just said there. Here's the life lesson. Here's the life lesson. Regardless of the successes we may have in what we do for God, it is the motive behind our efforts that means the most to God. Can I say that again? Regardless of the successes we have in what we do, for God, it is the motive behind our efforts that means the most to God. Because God is always looking inward into the heart. See, he care, he, it's, it doesn't matter what I think. 
And it, and it doesn't matter what you think. What matters is what God sees in me, what God sees in you as to the motive behind why we do say and behave the way we do. I once had a man hand me a million dollars. This is the truth. I once had a man hand me one million dollars given to put on our building campaign in another church. It's a lot of money. Paul says, it's not the amount of dollars that you've given that matters most. It's the reason about why you gave it that he's most interested in. Can we understand that? Can you get an amen on that? It's not the amount of money. It's not the amount of hard work that we might do for the kingdom. It's the motive. It's the reason behind we did those things that God is most interested to understand. That's a, that's a tough one. That is a really tough one. Clement of Rome, he was an early Christian. Uh, he was in the first century. And uh, he came to Christ and he made some writings. He wrote, wrote some things. And so he wrote some things about the early Christians that are helpful to historians. Because some of his work is preserved. And it's not, it's not Paul writing and it's not Peter writing. And it's, not, it's Clement of Rome who's writing. And so they, they, they take this as as uh, affirmation and, and so, as some apologetic material to help us validate the, the credibility of our scriptures. And here, here's what Clement of Rome said, and I quote, By reason of jealousy and strife. Now this is a guy who, who lived during this time. By reason of jealousy and strife, Paul, by his example, pointed out the prize of patient endurance. After that he had been he had been seven times in bonds, had been driven into exile, had been stoned, had preached in the East and in the West. He won the noble renown, which was the reward of his faith, having taught righteousness unto the whole world and having reached the farthest bounds of the West. And when he had borne his testimony before the rulers... So he departed from the world and went unto the holy place, having been found a notable pattern of patient endurance. Unquote. Patient endurance. So Paul was the kind of Christian who would have been an encouragement to new believers coming into the church. If Paul were here and you were a person just starting to come to this church, whatever, man, he would have, he would have been greeting you at the door. He would have been a greeter. He would have been somebody follow you all the way to the right Sunday school class. And he'd make sure you knew the small group so that you could get involved. And he'd make sure the pastor got an introduction to you and make sure the staff were aware of who you were. And he'd probably call you up later in the week or send you a note and say, thanks for visiting our church and thanks for being here. And is there anything I can do to help you? That's, that's Paul. That's what Paul would be doing in the life of the church. That's the kind of guy he was. But how are we to handle people in our lives, especially inside the walls of the church, who are sometimes difficult and who are sometimes contentious and, frankly, sometimes hard to get along with? Every church I've ever been a part of had some of those kind of people. And they're good people. And they're people Jesus died for. And they're people that we love. But they're just hard to get along with sometimes. How do we deal with that? So here's where we can make some practical application from the study of these four verses in Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. How do we handle ourselves? 
Young people, all you, all you young people on the front row here and everybody else, here, here's a help to you because you're going to run across people that hurt your feelings. You're going to have people that, you're going to have coaches that hurt your feelings. You're going to have teachers that hurt your feelings. You're going to have people in the life of the church walking through the halls and you're going to hurt your feelings. You're going to have friends that hurt your feelings. You're going to later on in life have bosses and supervisors and people like that that hurt your feelings. How do we handle people that are difficult for us sometimes? Because it will happen. Well, here's what the Scripture says. It's always in the Scriptures. Come back to the Scriptures. 1 Peter 5.8. Here's what he says. Be of sober spirit, Christians. All of you who truly know Jesus Christ, he's saying, stay awake. Stay alert. Be of sober spirit on the alert. Your adversary, who's the adversary? Satan, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now I'm going to get to devour. I'm going to get real practical with us for just a moment. You're going to think I'm off in the weeds for just a moment, but I want you to just give me this for a moment. And then I'm going to bring it back around uh, to something that I hope you'll find very helpful. I want to show a picture on the screen that's taken from the animal kingdom. And I just want to warn you in advance, it's not a pretty sight. It's not a pretty picture. It depicts a lion that is taking down an animal that is much larger than itself, and it's a violent picture. The violence is not what I want you to take note of, though. Can you see it up there? That, that's an ugly picture to me. It's painful to see that happening. But it is a picture of the strategy of technique and careful positioning that the lion, you, now the scripture said he's like a lion. That's why we're talking about a lion. The devil is like a lion. And he has technique and carefully strategized positioning to take you and I down and away from Jesus. To render the prey helpless. It's like C.S. Lewis. They would take him down. Don't let him see the glory of God. Take him down. Take him out and take him out fast. So you see the picture. You see the bite of the lion is placed upon the most vulnerable part of that wildebeest body. The Apostle Peter tells the church, it's like Pastor Tim is trying to tell the church on behalf of Peter, Paul, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, I read this in God's Word and I am trying to tell the church, not that you have never heard it, never read it, that you don't know it and understand it, but he said, tell the church again that Satan will constantly come against the followers of Jesus in that same way. He will look for the soft spot in your defense. He will constantly look for your underbelly. Wherever you are most vulnerable and tender, he knows it. And that is where he will come after you. We know that. Paul, Paul, in fact, Paul said to the church in Thessalonica, here's another scripture. He says, 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, So then, let us not sleep. Let us not sleep as others do. But let us be alert and sober. So my question is, where, where are we most vulnerable to the enemy's attacks? Well, I got thinking about that, and I thought, you know, so, some of the most vulnerability has to do with uh, physical attributes. And so, so I want to show you a picture. There's a picture up here of, uh, we got that up here. Uh, yeah, here's a picture 
of a couple of guys ready for a martial arts fight, preparing to go at each other. <laughs> uh, do you see anybody that looks uh, right on the surface somewhat vulnerable? If you were in that ring, which one of those guys would you rather be? You see what I'm saying? So, so from a physical attribute standpoint, there are some things that can make us vulnerable. One fighter is obviously much larger than his opponent. In fact, as a matter of fact, the big guy there is Choi Hee-man, a seven-foot-two-inch Korean martial arts fighter. Now, it is true that on a, ca- a rare occasion, the craftier, smaller, smaller guy can win. But the odds are almost always in favor of the big guy. Am I right? I mean, it usually works itself out that way. So there is a natural vulnerability with most of uh, the opponents simply because of size. But here's what psychology tells us. Now, I hope you'll let me, let me just move into the weeds a bit. Uh, psychology is not weeds, but I don't want you to think that psychology is as important or more important than what the Bible says because it isn't. What I'm going to show us, I believe, is that psychology is bearing out the truth of what God's Word says. Psychology tells us that the place where human beings are most vulnerable is in the area of their emotions. Would you say emotions? One, two, three. Emotions. That is where human beings are the most vulnerable. I can tell you even my dog has emotions. If I talk kind of mean and curt and a little snarly to my dog, uh, you know, he, he, he kind of pouts and he, he goes to Cynthia and he doesn't want to be around me and you know because I affected his his emotions somehow some way whatever dogs have emotional trauma actually has a more lethal impact than the trauma of physical pain emotional trauma has a more lethal impact than the trauma of physical pain now I can prove that to you many of us are watching the Olympics in South Korea this, this last week and a half or so. And, uh, you know, our team from America is, is trying to represent us well, and it's kind of fun to watch them. And uh, We've already seen, and they're not finished yet, but we have already seen some examples of outstanding, gifted, hardworking, talented athletes who have suffered some kind of a physical injury by falling down on a ski slope or being tripped on the uh, ice and crashing into a wall or whatever, and uh, and the physical. Listen, it always hurts. I, I can, you know, when they go around those uh, poles and the down downhill skiing, and I'm thinking, and they hit those with their. Doesn't that hurt? I mean, I I mean, they're going like I don't know, 60 miles an hour or more, and they hit those poles trying to cut it thin, and or they crash into the walls of uh, going around the uh, the ice rink at 30 miles an hour or whatever. But listen. When we see the sadness and we see the disappointment on their faces, once they realize that their chance to win a medal is gone, it becomes obvious that the emotional trauma of not being able to achieve a goal and win a medal for their country is more painful than the broken bone or the torn ligament. From the fall. You follow what I'm saying? Emotional trauma is significant. Mark Twain, I used to attribute this to Zig Ziglar, but I think he was quoting Mark Twain as I as I got a little deeper into the study of this. But Mark Twain, humorist, 
This is what he said, and you've heard me use this illustration before, but not all of you have. Here's what he said. We should be careful to get out of an experience only the wisdom that is in it and stop there, lest we be like the cat that sits down on a hot stove lid. She will never sit down on a hot stove lid again, and that's well. But also she will never sit down on a cold one anymore, unquote. So why won't the cat sit on a cold stove? Answer is because the brain was tricked. The cat's brain was tricked. When it got the emotional trauma of getting its little bottom burned by jumping on a hot stove lid, that, that sent a signal and a message to the brain. And the brain processed that with the information that it had, and the brain sent a message to the cat and said, get out of the business of jumping on stoves. That's why he said he'll never jump on a cold one. Well, why is that bad? Well, if the cat's looking for a place to land sometime, and maybe sometime when it was a little warm and cozy, not hot, but warm and cozy, he'll never experience that. And he'll never have a place to sit, even if the stove wasn't on, while you are working in the kitchen and the cat wants to be near. He'll never get on that stove ever again. But here's the truth about stoves. Stoves are cold most of the time. Most of the time, a stove is cold. Isn't it a shame the cat just ruined a possibility that is out there? Why? Because the brain tricked the cat over emotional trauma. Have you ever felt tricked by some emotional trauma that has come into your life? Well, that's a good question for us to ask. Psychologists who study how emotions actually play havoc with our lives at times, they tell us that there are times when a single failure in the past. Now, I'm talking to, I'm talking to somebody's here this morning. I know I am. That there are times when a single failure in the past will convince our mind that we could never overcome a challenge or achieve a difficult goal again. The emotional trauma of a hard experience in the past can destroy our confidence in moving forward and ever believing in ourselves ever again sometimes. Perhaps you heard this story of the psychologist who visited a daycare one day. I wonder if Trish, uh, who runs our daycare, uh, preschool uh, wouldn't say she's seen evidence of this very thing, perhaps many times. And the story goes like this. The psychologist visits a daycare, and he observes three children that are playing with a toy box. Each of them have a toy box. It's an identical toy box, and the toy box has on it a purple button, and it has a red button. And uh, the red button, if moved in the right direction causes the lid on the box to pop open and out jumps a sweet, lovable little puppy that is so fun for the kids to be able to see. It's like a little puppy jack-in-the-box. So as he's watching these three children, here's what he noticed. The first child, he said, the first child played with the box and tried everything imaginable, but nothing happened. So she put the box down put on a very sullen, stoop-shouldered demeanor, and her little lower lip started to quiver 
She was about ready to cry. And that was the end of it and gave up. Now the second child was a little boy. And the little boy watching the first child and what had happened and what that child had experienced, he looked at his box and he just started bawling and put the thing away. Never even touched it. Never even touched it. Didn't even try. Didn't even try it. And then the third little child messed around with the box, pulled on the purple, pushed on the purple button, which did nothing, monkeyed around with the red button, and eventually slid that red button in the right direction, and out popped the little puppy dog to everybody's delight. What's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is that the brain can be tricked into drawing wrong conclusions. And the sad fact for many people is that they often function below their actual potential because their brain has processed things improperly as a result of emotional trauma. Case in point, the little boy gave up before he even got started because his brain played a trick on him and said, it isn't going to work. There's no use trying. That's a trick. That was not the truth. Listen to this, convinced by the mind of an opinion of the mind, tainted by an emotional trauma to the mind, can yield an inaccurate appraisal of our true ability. And once the mind has made its decision, it's like trying to change a Democrat to a Republican or a Republican to a Democrat. And you all know what I'm talking about. Once the mind is convinced, it's like pulling teeth to change it. That's why it's such a hard subject. And, and in the church world, we don't like to talk about these things because it's hard. This is one of the toughest concepts that any of us in the, in, the, in the Christian family have to deal with. And that is how we process emotional trauma. Because pastors get their feelings hurt badly sometimes. And sometimes pastors hurt other people's feelings badly sometimes. And sometimes one another, we hurt one another's feelings badly sometimes. And it goes on and on and on, and we could spend too much time on it. Well, psychologists tell us that emotional pain has a greater tendency to do something they call echoing that happens with physical pain. It's, it, it's something they call echoing. And it's more, it doesn't happen with the physical pain unless you have maybe somebody who had an amputee and they might feel a, a you know, a, 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 what's that called? A phantom pain, phantom, phantom, whatever. It's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about something different, echoing, echoing. It's like when the yodeler goes to the Swiss Alps and goes, whatever, I can't yodel. And they put it out there and the mountains send that, that little musical phrase back to the person who, who, who yodeled it. And oftentimes, it's not just one time. If you get a really good spot, it will echo it and echo it, and it gets fainter and fainter each time, but it'll keep echoing it. And, and so emotional trauma has the potential to echo in our brains, in our spirit. So here's an interesting example. Here, if you're, mar if you're married, some of you aren't, so you just have to relate to this. You and your spouse, okay, we just had Valentine's Day. You and your spouse 
are out on the town for a great Valentine's Day date. And you have a wonderful time together. Maybe you go shopping for a little while, and then you've made reservations at a romantic, really great place to get a steak or whatever it is that uh, your honey really enjoys eating or whatever. And you're having a great time. It's, a, you're having a, it's Valentine's Day. And you're having a great time together as a husband and wife, and all of a sudden your cell phone rings. And, 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 and the cell phone reveals a, a message that changes everything. The tragic news is that your brother or your sister, or you name whoever it is, was just in a terrible automobile accident, and sadly, they did not survive the crash. What if I told you that the next next few times you try to celebrate Valentine's Day, you're likely to get an echo. Are you hearing me? You're likely to get an echo from that emotional trauma that went to your brain, and your brain is going to say, oh boy, last time we went out, last time we went to this restaurant, last time we visited Branson, last time we went to the Smoky Mountains, last time we did this, this is last time I stepped on the line going to the pitcher's mound, I, something bad happened and people struck out. You know, I, I got a trauma. I got this trauma, and there's this echo that comes back again and again. The, the echo effect of the traumatic news sometimes never goes away for some people. Do you know that? Some people carry it for a lifetime. Now, what what is that echoing and reminding us of of that sadness? What's that rooted in? It's rooted in something psychologists call rumination. Can you say it? Rumination. Say it. One, two, three. Rumination. Rumination. What is rumination? Rumination is... It's a critical player in emotional trauma and pain. Margaret Tartakovsky says this, and I quote about rumination. Listen to what she says, and I quote. Ruminating is like a record that's stuck, and it keeps repeating the same lyrics. It's replaying an argument with a friend in your mind. It's retracing past mistakes. When people ruminate, they overthink. They, over, they obsess about situations or life events such as work or relationships, unquote. Now, understandably, in life, to be able to problem solve, we have to think about things a little bit. We, we have to let our mind process things, of course, to figure out some situations. But listen to me. Our tendency as people is to ruminate. Our tendency is to overthink a situation to the point that we don't think straight about some things anymore. So here's the question. Now, I'm going to bring this back. You thought I got off in the weeds and I'm away from the scriptures. And what. Now, listen to what I'm saying here, if you will. Did Paul ruminate over these preachers who had bad motives and were causing him additional frustration? It's one after 12. I'm sorry, but I'm just about finished. Let me try to land this. Is that okay? It's never okay. You like it when Cynthia preaches and she get, uh, get to lunch on time. I know that. I heard that a hundred times. It's about to make me sick. I make me inferior. In fact, it's emotional trauma for me when you tell me that. And I, I'm ruminating about it. Right, thank you. I'm starting to ruminate about it. <laughs> she did a great job, by the way. So do you ever ruminate over betrayal? Do you ever ruminate over gossip that happened to you? Do you ever ruminate over somebody slandered you? Do you ever overthink it 
And it just kind of keeps going on and on and on and on. You, you see, I, I heard a story of a woman. Listen to this. story of a woman who had a, 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 was married for a long time. And she and her husband had a terrible breakup. It was very ugly. It was a terrible thing. And uh, she was struggling after, after the breakup. She was struggling with something that is one of the most devastating emotional traumas a person can ever experience. And it's called loneliness. Hello? Is loneliness not tough? Anybody that's in it, that feels it, it's one of the toughest emotional trauma you can ever experience. And so she finally got so fed up and hurt from loneliness, as you might imagine, that she decided that she was going to try a uh, dating site. And so she tried this dating site. And uh, the emotional trauma of loneliness leading the mind to wrong conclusions, you know, Satan can use that to trick us. Now, I want you to keep in mind, all of this psychology information is pointing us to the ways the enemy of our faith constantly works at our weak spots. Where's your weak spot? It's the emotional trauma that you, you, that you ruminate about. It's a weak spot. It's where the lion wants to grab you, grab me, and hurt us. So back to the woman, her broken marriage. She gets to the place where she checks out this, web, this website, dating website. And she, and she finds this guy on there that is really, a, she's checked his pictures, good looking fellow. He's about her age. He has a successful career. He's made a good living. And the thing that she liked best about him is that all of the responses she's getting from him online is that he thinks that she is fabulous. He is, he is dialed in. She is the cat's meow, so to speak. She's, she is the object of his great affection. So they decided they were going to meet. And they met at a popular New York establishment, and they began to talk. And believe it or not, after just 10 minutes, after just 10, think about this, emotional trauma. After 10 minutes, the man got up and said these words, I'm not interested. And he walked out. Now, picture if you're the woman. You're sitting there. He just got up. I'm not interested. Boom. He's out of there. You talk about emotional trauma. So after a little while, she got herself collected, and she picked up her cell phone, and she called her best friend. And she just had to talk to somebody. And uh, you know what her best friend said? I, and I quote, Well, I don't know why you would expect a successful and handsome man like that to be interested in you. After all, after all, you do have big hips. You have nothing interesting to say. So why would a loser like you expect a man like that to be interested in you? Now that may seem shocking to you that a good friend would say something like that to their friend who was already distraught in the first place. Remember, Paul was already distraught in the first place and then they heaped this stuff on him. And perhaps you would be less shocked to know that it wasn't her friend who said those unkind words. In reality, it was the woman's mind speaking those words to herself. Why would anybody be interested in you You've got big hips. You're not beautiful enough. You don't have anything interesting to cause anyone to want to spend time with you. Question. You know, we do this to ourselves all the time. 
Do you have any idea where your most vulnerable spot is when it comes to your emotions? See, Satan, like a lion in the picture, he's not confused where your soft spot is. He already knows where that point of weakness is, and he goes for it every time. Well, in the study of Philippians, the Lord has brought us to a portion of Paul's letter that deals with the subject of church life and one that we don't ordinarily like to talk about. When a person first comes into a relationship with Christ, they go to church. And they do that because the Bible says the church is the bride of Christ. God uses the metaphor of marriage to show us something special about his love for the church. That's why he says, I'm married. This My bride is the church. Jesus is symbolically. Do you get this, young people? You need to write this down. So when Jessica checks your notes, you got this one. Jesus is symbolically married to the church. That's why it's important for you to be on the front row here and showing that you're interested in the things of God. Why marriage? Because marriage is an exclusive relationship between one man and one woman. Can I get an amen on that? Exclusive to that one person, no matter who might try to barge in. It's intended to last a lifetime. It's a love that puts the other person's needs first because that is the way Jesus loves. It is a love that places the specialness of the other person at its highest level, so high that one person would die for the other person. It is a relationship that entails tenderness and deep joy and contentment that bonds the two with the deepest expressions of intimacy and closeness. It is a picture of a relationship that goes beyond mere friendship. This is the kind of love Jesus has for each person who loves him. And is the kind of love that he commands us to demonstrate to one another in the community of faith. You know, our ladies had a Bible study last week, talked about the sin of gossip and slander. It's all over the life of the church. God forbid. How could, how, how could anybody say something evil and contentious and divisive about somebody else in the life of a church or a Christian community knowing the love of Jesus and what he has commanded of us? And we've all done it. I'll just confess your sin along with mine. We've all done it, God forbid. So back to Paul. What happens to Paul while he's in chains? Well, some of his brothers put him down. So he says, verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Look, in our modern day language, I close with this thought. In our modern day language, what he was saying was, So what? So what? If they, if they talk about Jesus in the right way, even though they have wrong motives, so what? I will rejoice in the fact that they are lifting up Christ. And so he has refused to ruminate. He has refused to echo. Anybody sitting in prison, you don't have anything to do all day long, chained to a guard? You got an opportunity to ruminate. You know, if, you, if you're retired and you have somebody hurt your feelings and emotional trauma... You got all day long to chart your course and say, I can do whatever I want to do any day that I want. And if you choose, you can sit there and you can ruminate and you can let echo, 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 all this ugly stuff. Paul says, don't do that. Rejoice, rejoice and stay on track. What is our only that Christ is proclaimed. That's why we put that on the banner. He said only that Jesus is proclaimed. That's all I care about. And the rest of it can go pound salt. Let God deal with those folks. Amen?
So we need to practice forgiveness. We need to, we need to get a little tough in our, our mindset, in our spirit, and not let people that are difficult to deal with sometimes reign on our parade. Amen? Amen. Now, what can you do? Well, he chose not to let the echoes of disappointing behavior uh, continue to bounce back in his spirit. We don't find him ruminating over thinking their mo- the motives and wanting to straighten people out. Listen, if I was writing Paul's letter, I would have put another chapter in there and I would have tuned those bad preachers up. Wouldn't you? I would have said, hey, man, i got enough trouble. And you're going to do this to me while I can't even do that? All right, let's stand. I- I've-, I've kept you too long. I- I'm sorry. But listen, this is significant. This is significant truth that God wants us to understand from His Word See, this is not psychology. This is God's truth on how to deal with difficult people. And you need to practice that right now when you're thinking, I preach too long. Because you go home and ruminate over it. And I don't want to hear about it because you already add insult to my already pain. Okay? So I don't want to hear about it. But I, but I do appreciate the tiredness of your behinds. I understand that. But this is worth it if we have one young person, one person who's dealing with emotional trauma and you are short-circuiting what God's potential for you is because you're looking back on a terrible experience that you've had and you just can't seem to get over it. Listen, get with somebody. Get with a counselor. Get with somebody that'll pray with you and listen to you and help you. You can have some catharsis and get that out in the open so that you can talk to God about it and move on with your life. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to repent of your sins and look to him today and invite him to be your Lord and Savior. And we'll help you do that if you'll let us know who you are. Heavenly Father, I I ran long today. I knew I would, but this is so vital for people. And it's so vital for me and for all of us that we don't allow these, uh, these, this roaring lion trying to grab us by the jugular vein where we are most vulnerable And Lord, I just know there are people out there that are still struggling with certain things. And it's so easy for it to pop back up. All we have to do is drive by someplace or go visit someplace or have the wrong person come across our path or something along that line. And the devil just grabs us by the throat and takes our joy. And so God, we come against that in Jesus' name. And I pray that you will set people free today from the emotional trauma that has gone on in their lives. And I pray, God, that we will not run away from the church just because we may have some challenges with people from time to time. Help us to practice perseverance and courage and patience like Paul and help us to stay happy in the process. We need your help, Lord, and we thank you for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.